Last week we spent time in John chapter 4, the story of Jesus and the woman at the Samaritan well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And um, we looked at the first half. We're going to continue studying this passage together. We'll uh, read the verses 1 through 42 again to um, remind us of what this was about. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father was seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know, do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So far. And our focus this morning will be the verses 16 through 26. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever tried inviting an unbeliever to church? If you have, you may find that they'll often decline. They'll say things like, nah, that's not my thing. In their mind, going to church is only for certain kinds of people. There are some who go to church, some who don't. They put themselves in the category of people who don't go to church. So there's a common understanding held by unbelievers that only certain kinds of people go to church. Now, could it be that sometimes we share in that attitude? We have a certain mental image of what a church-going person is supposed to look like. And when someone comes to church who significantly deviates from that image, we don't always make a point out of trying to include that person in our worship, do we? In our passage this morning, we are presented again with a woman who does not fit the profile of a typical worshiper. She's very different from the man who came to see Jesus in the previous chapter. That man's name was Nicodemus. He was smart, educated, serious about his faith, powerful. This woman is brash on the margins and doesn't seem to be particularly regretful about where she's at. And what's striking is how Jesus approaches this woman. He tells her about the kinds of worshipers that the Father is seeking. It would have made more sense to us if he would have had that conversation with Nicodemus. To us, Nicodemus seems like a good man who just needed some misunderstandings cleared up. In fact, it would have made the most sense to us if the people in these two chapters would have been switched 
so that Jesus would have told this woman that she needed to be born again and told Nicodemus what kind of worshipers her father really wants. But that didn't happen. From Jesus' perspective, Nicodemus is no closer to the truth than this woman is. And interestingly, when Jesus comes to this woman, he does not try to make her Jewish. He does not try to reintegrate her into her community. He has a totally different kind of a conversation with her. He redefines for her, changes the whole definition of what a true worshiper is to begin with. And he says, those kinds of people are the worshipers that the Father is seeking. So this, after, this morning we'll pay attention to that. We'll consider what Jesus said, that the Father is seeking true worshipers, and we'll ask two questions. Who are the worshipers and how are they to worship him? So as we saw last week, the Lord Jesus came to a Samaritan village on his way to Galilee. So he's already on the fringes of Jewish life at this point. The Jews, in fact, did not consider the Samaritans to be pure because the Samaritans had a tainted family tree. You might remember from last week that they had, their ancestors had intermingled with the heathens from other nations who had been forcibly resettled into that area during the Assyrian invasions. So the Samaritans were already outcasts. And then you get this woman at the well, she's a double outcast. She's Samaritan and she is alone. Normally a woman wouldn't come to the well in the hottest part of the day. We all know how hot it was yesterday. You imagine going, going for a walk through the hills with a water jug to go and get water when it's that hot. It's not something that's done. The fact that she did that anyway shows that she's not welcome among the other women in the village who would have all gathered to get water early in the morning when it was cool. So already there's a clue that something is not right here. And then when Jesus tells her to go get a husband, she said, says, I have no husband. And now we might want to give her the benefit of the doubt and, um, and think that maybe she's a widow. But she can't be a widow because if she would have been a widow, she would have said so. Widows were not ignored by the people around them. Widows had a certain degree of respect in the sense that the word of God told the Israelites to care for the widow and the orphan. But no one respects this woman, and this morning we find out why. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answers, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. Think about that. Five husbands? Even by today's standards, and we're used to seeing celebrity marriage train wrecks in the news for the people that pay attention to that sort of thing. But even by those standards, five husbands is extreme. What we can deduce from that is that she was probably exceptionally beautiful in her youth since so many consecutive men wanted to marry her. But they all divorced her eventually. Now, it is true that divorce for a Jewish and presumably for a Samaritan man um, would, would advantage the man. And it could also be if she divorced once, it, c it could be that she had married an evil man. 
That can happen sometimes, and it's a great tragedy when it does. And it can even happen that the same woman remarries and marries another evil man. A double tragedy, and some people's lives are like that. They're filled with tragedy. But if she went through this process five times, we can probably all agree that the men are not the problem here. This is clearly a difficult woman, and she's obviously become older since getting married and divorced five times is going to take time. So she's at least middle age, socially excluded, and she has this reputation. And the sixth man is willing to live with her, but he's not committed enough to actually tie the knot. So she's clearly out of options. This is a difficult woman with a lot of problems, many of which are self-inflicted, but also someone who has suffered a lot because of the choices that she made. So a complex situation, a complex person, not somebody that any of us would voluntarily approach very quickly. Now what's fascinating is that Jesus' words indicate he knew all of this ahead of time. How can he know that? Because he's God. And God knows our heart. In fact, God knows our very thoughts. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Psalm 94. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 139. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So Jesus knew every detail of her tragic life story before she even opened her mouth. And you would think that that would be the reason for him not to go and look after her. What kind of worshiper is the father seeking? Well, definitely not that kind, we would think. We would think he would be far more interested in people like Nicodemus or maybe even people like ourselves. But this woman, with her bizarre Hollywood lifestyle, and yet he seeks her out. And most interesting of all, he doesn't raise any of her sins at the beginning. Even though he is pure, even though he is the Holy One of God, Jesus sought out this woman with her sin. And when he summarizes her life in only one sentence, he simply states the facts. He doesn't accuse her. He doesn't reject her, even though he knows. And the same is true for us today. He does not reject us either, even though he knows all that there is to know about us. Dwell on that, beloved, and consider it. He's not waiting for you to become more godly or more spiritual, whatever that means, before he makes his promises to you. He says that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Whoever. That's an unconditional promise to all people. And therefore a promise he made to you. He never revoked those words. He did not qualify them in any way. He simply says, whoever comes. Christ knows all. And he calls you to respond with faith. How foolish then for us not to do so. How foolish then for us not to confess our sins. How foolish to put up a false front when his under-shepherds, the office-bearers, 
come to your home on their annual home visits. Jesus does not reject her, but he does gently confront her. Why? Because she asked him for that living water. Remember, living water is a biblical metaphor for communion with God. It means, as the Westminster Catechism puts it in question and answer one, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what it means to have communion with God, to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to be united with him And so Jesus brings her sin to the surface because for her to get to that point, the the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in an unrepentant heart. It's interesting that as soon as Jesus confronts her, the woman switches to a religious question. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And you here is plural, so she's, she means you Jews. Now think about this for a minute. You know, it's really easy to, to gloss over a passage like this because you've read it so many times and to lose, to miss all of the, the nuances and the layers that are in here. But just think for a moment, if this had been you, surely she would have been spooked by such an open description of her life history. What if, you, what if you were in the airport or something and uh, you happen to be alone, let's say at a prayer room. Um, we were at the airport recently. They have these prayer rooms. Very few people come to pray. So imagine that you're at this prayer room and a man comes up to you and you're alone and he tells you your whole life history in a couple of sentences and he's dead accurate, stuff that no one else could have ever known. Don't you think you would have been just a little bit spooked? Oh, this woman doesn't miss a beat. She she shows no sign of remorse. It may be that she changes the topic because she's ashamed at what Jesus reveals about her, but she doesn't show that shame elsewhere in the passage, in verse 29, for instance. She goes uh, to the villagers and says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. You guys know, I know. Let's not have any secrets here. Come and check it out. No sign of remorse. Doesn't lose a beat. She doesn't start weeping when she sees him the way another woman once did when confronted with Jesus. Jesus didn't even have to reveal her life to her. She already knew, and as soon as she saw Jesus, she bursts into tears because she feels so guilty. We see none of that here. This woman is totally unapologetic. And that shows how deeply sin is rooted in her heart. This woman is not fit to be a worshiper of God at all. But then again, from the perspective of what sin is, neither are we, are we? Our sins are no different from this woman's. It's a difference of degree, not of kind or essence. The Forum for the Lord's Supper, we'll be reading it next week. And it reminds us we need to be made worthy partakers because no one comes to the front on their own charter, on their own authority. Now, some might protest and go, well, look at how spiritual she is. Surely she can't, you must be misunderstanding, she can't be that bad if she has this profound religious question at the front of her mind when the rest of her life is so damaged. Think about that from that perspective. She has all this trauma, difficulty in her life, 
And yet the one thing that's front and center in our mind is what mountain am I supposed to worship at? So she can't be that bad, can she? But you know what? Lots of people with issues in their life talk about religion when confronted with their sin. It's always easier to talk about religion. And this happens on home visits too sometimes. It's always easier to go to church or to attend catechism or talk about big religious ideas without personally responding to God's call on your life. And this question falls into that category. It was, in a sense, an easy out for her because there was this vast gulf separating Samaritans and Jews, and one of the key issues that they had was the place of worship. She says, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Again, the you is plural, and so she's pointing him back to the one big difference, the disagreement that stands between them. It's a little bit of a, you know, maybe he got a bit too close, and now she reminds him again of that distance. The Jews obviously worshipped on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And this, this comment actually is potentially funny when you realize that the Samaritans believed out of principle that Mount Gerizim was the tallest mountain in the world, which it was not. Mount Ebal right across the valley was taller. Everybody could see that. But they said on principle, no, Mount Gerizim is the tallest mountain in the world. So they were stubborn. And if you have that sort of deeply rooted stubbornness, this woman is not coming to Jesus on her own. But he goes on to say something that puts it all in a different light. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying, you, you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So she throws out this question, and he says, you know what? None of that is actually relevant. It's not that the Jews were wrong as such. Salvation is from the Jews, he says. The Messiah did come from the Jews, has come from the Jews, but there's a whole lot more to this discussion than you think. The mountain, Mount Zion, was a means to an end. Worship at the temple was a means to an end. But it was not the end itself. The prophet Jeremiah already looked forward to that in Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's in Jeremiah 31. So these words show us that the, the worship at the temple was never meant to be a permanent solution. Something greater was coming. God of spirits is Jesus. Those who worship him will, must worship in spirit and truth. 
And if he is spirit, then clearly he cannot be known unless he reveals himself to us. And he did that through Christ. All of Old Testament worship was meant to point to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures because the scriptures are about how God makes it possible for himself to dwell among men again. The triune God wants to dwell with us. Look at verses 23 to 26. Have a look at this. There's a reference to each member of the Trinity in these verses. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. So all three um, members of the Trinity, persons of the Trinity are referenced here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that triune God can only dwell among us if he cleanses us of our sins. And the woman, the woman at the well didn't fully understand that. The question is, how will God dwell among man? Scripture teaches it is through Christ the Messiah. And initially the woman seems to agree with that. She, she throws out this one piece of information that she does know. She says, um, um, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. But again, definitions. Her idea of what the Messiah was was something very different because the Samaritans believed in the Messiah as well, but uh, they called him the Taheb, the Restorer. Remember, they rejected everything in the Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses. They thought everything went wrong after Samuel. The Taheb would come and he would restore everything to the way that it was supposed to be. And so that was their idea of the Messiah, but Restoring worship to what it used to be is not the same thing as cleansing people from their sin. So who are God's true worshipers? Well, such people, verse 23. People who can worship in spirit and truth. It's only ever possible if God himself enables that. And he enables it through Jesus. I who speak to you am he, says Jesus. I am the Messiah. I am the reason why the Father was seeking such people to worship him. So the Father was seeking true worshipers, but the only way that they can come to him is through faith in the Son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, he said. And he doesn't give that to us as a piece of information. This requires a response of faith. We cannot truly worship the Father unless we are cleansed by the Son. Now this promise of cleansing is for you as well. Most of you sitting here this morning were baptized. Baptism is a promise that you were cleansed by the blood of Christ and renewed by the Spirit of Christ. And that promise requires a response. Yes, children who are baptized belong to the Lord. They do. But as they grow up, they need to respond in faith to his promises. And you do as well. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He didn't just say that to outsiders. He said that to Nicodemus. That was one of God's Old Testament covenant people. 
So if you're a young person sitting here, you should not think that you are exempt. Yes, often covenant youth do have saving faith because they grew up in church. But growing up in church is not the same thing as having saving faith. Remember, the issue, as our passage makes clear, is not where you grew up. The issue is what kind of a worshiper are you? It's easy on the one hand to try to differentiate yourself from the group. Maybe you're not bold enough to break entirely, but you rebel in different ways. For example, you might go to church or catechism, but when you're there, you express supreme disinterest in anything that is being said. That's a form of quiet rebellion. Or perhaps you're the good kid who embraces tradition, but tradition won't save you. That's the whole point of verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Tradition cannot save. The Father is seeking true worshipers. So we've seen who they are. Now the question is, how are they to worship him? It's our second point. Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Verse 23. Now, what does that mean? First of all, we need to look at the word spirit. You'll notice that in verse 23, the the word spirit is um, in a lowercase. There's a lowercase s there. Verse 24 as well. God is spirit. It's also lowercase s. But a number of the oldest manuscripts indicate that in both cases it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. As a point of trivia, we know that because it's got a bar above it. If you look, the oldest manuscripts are all handwritten, obviously. And um, often a divine name has a bar above it. Sometimes it's an abbreviation with a bar above it. That's how they saved themselves having to write the whole thing out. And uh, the word spirit in both places has a bar above it in some of these oldest manuscripts. So it should be with a capital S, as in the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and God is spirit, capital S. Now, obviously, lowercase and uppercase do not exclude each other. That is to say, even if it were all lowercase s's, the point would still be true. God is a spirit. He is spiritual. He does not want mere formal worship on the outside. The true worshipers are to worship in spirit, not just through ritual. But the basic point that he's making here, and the deeper point underneath it really is that true worship has to and only ever can be motivated by the Holy Spirit. The worship that pleases God is not dependent on a place. It comes out of conversion, not out of tradition. The temple was a stage on the way, but it was not the final goal. The whole temple system was meant to point us to the deliverance that God was going to give in Christ. Now that Christ has come, we don't need the means to the end anymore. But we should not think that because we now worship in and through the Holy Spirit, we can do whatever we want. Some people have really strange ideas about what can and cannot be done in church. Just yesterday, I saw footage on YouTube, and I, I, you don't need to look far for this, of, um, of a priest during a worship service leading a procession of worshipers around the sanctuary, around the auditorium, in a conga line. 
So you know they all have their hands on each other's backs and they, they do this little dance around the auditorium. And you can find all sorts of other strange things that people do during worship services. That wasn't what Jesus meant at all. He's not saying that in the past there was all this tradition which was complicated and stiff, but now you get to worship however you want. No. The point is that whatever ideas people have about worship, it's not necessarily what God demands. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Spirit and truth belong together. Jesus calls him the spirit of truth in John 15 verse 26 because he bears witness of the truth about Christ. To worship in the spirit is only possible when someone is filled with the spirit. You can only be filled with the spirit when you know, profess, believe the truth about Christ. The spirit leads us to worship God as he reveals himself through Jesus Christ. And all true believers are filled with the spirit. That's why we don't go to the temple anymore. That's why even if there ever were to be another temple built in Jerusalem, it would be irrelevant to us because we are the temple. And one place where this comes out very clearly is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. He writes, but one who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, says Paul, and then it goes on to say, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. He means the blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. So we are united in faith to Christ. His Spirit dwells in us. So God's temple today is the church. And because the Spirit dwells in the church, He also dwells in each individual believer as well. And then because we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, we are also renewed by the Spirit of Christ. As Paul writes in a second letter, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a Spirit. So he says, look, you behold the glory of the Lord, you are filled with the Spirit of the Lord, you are transformed into the image of the Lord. And that will always lead to transformed actions. And undoubtedly, the Samaritan woman also underwent a drastic change after she came to know Christ. The woman who came back from the well was not the same woman as the one who went there. She was changed. But listen carefully. The greatest transformation of all is not that she stopped sinning. The greatest transformation of all is that she started worshiping. She started worshiping in spirit and truth, and it transformed her whole life. Jesus is still the Savior of the world. That is to say, salvation is still not limited to people from one particular background. That's the gospel. Do we see that as good news or do we feel threatened by it? When we look around us, when we go into Mundajong or Serpentine, when you go to the hardware store or the chemist or anywhere else in town, do you see all these people as potential worshipers? Do we ever reflect on the miracle of God's grace that he saw us as worshipers? Look around you. All these people around you are worshipers. They're all people called to worship, old and young, male and female, some from different walks of life, some with tragic life stories, some with happy life stories, some successful in life, some maybe less so. 
all called to worship by the same God. Is that not a miracle of grace? And is worship not the one thing that cuts across all divides? Should Sunday, this day, not be the day when we feel this spiritual kinship the most clearly? So do we experience it that way on Sunday? Or do we go outside after the service and head for our car or our familiar spot in the parking lot? Our little predictable group. Is our highest priority in church life, in marriage, in family relationships, is our highest priority to bring out the worship in each other? Or are we more concerned with fitting and being fitted into a particular kind of a mold? At the beginning of the sermon, we ask, can only certain kinds of people be worshipers or church members, sorry? Can only certain kinds of people be church members was a question we asked at the beginning. And if your answer to that is yes, well, you're always going to feel insecure. Because if it's only a certain kind of a person who can be a worshiper, then you'll only ever feel secure if you are that kind of person. And you'll feel ashamed if you're not. But then you should remember the Lord's Supper, which we hope to celebrate again next week. Because when we come to the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge our sin. Everybody who comes to the front by virtue of coming is acknowledging their sin before you all. We acknowledge we are not inherently worthy to worship the Father. But we also acknowledge that we come through the Son. We acknowledge that we are being renewed by the Spirit. So we worship together, the triune God. We worship the triune God together. And we look forward to the day when there will be a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Father is still seeking true worshipers, so worship Him. Amen.